Hi, and welcome to GCs in the House, a podcast spotlighting general counsels. I'm your host, Lena Guo. In my conversations with GCs, we discuss how they got in the top legal seat, obstacles that they had to overcome along the way, and how they are tackling new challenges. This is the third episode of the Women General Counsel series. Today, I am speaking with Wei Chen, Executive Vice President and General Counsel of Infoblox, a cloud-based networking and security company that is based in Santa Clara, California. Wei received her Bachelor of Law and Master of Law while in China. She then immigrated to the U.S., earning a Master's in Sociology from the University of Delaware and then her JD from the University of Illinois. After practicing as a corporate attorney at Skadden and Cooley, Wei began her in-house journey at Sun Microsystems. Wei was with Salesforce for over 12 years before she became general counsel of Infoblox. Wei talked about how she started her career just following the herd, how her time at Salesforce gave her the opportunity to gain the leadership skills that she didn't think she needed, how she has been leveraging AI to be a more effective attorney, and the importance of continuing to learn and having a positive contribution to the world around us. Here's my conversation with Wei. Hi, Wei. Thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast. uh, I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Lena. Thanks so much for inviting me. Great. And, you know, I thought you would be such a perfect guest for the podcast because of your really unique background and experience. I think you are a total badass. And I just want (laughs) I just want listeners to hear like everything that, you know, all the obstacles that you've had to overcome to to become a general counsel. So to start Please tell us who you are and your current role and tell us a little bit about your company. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Wei Chen and I'm the general counsel of uh, Infoblox. Uh, Infoblox is a a leader in the domain name system management and security. Uh, We're trying to unite the networking industry and the security industry. It is a portfolio company of two private equity firms, uh, Vista and Warburg. Uh, I'm actually a first-time GC, so I joined Infoblox over a year ago. So far, I have to say it's been a very rewarding experience. Great, thank you. And to to start from the beginning, you've got degrees in spades. Tell <laughs> us how how tell us how they all came about and what led you down the path of law. Yeah, and then for anyone, any people who know me that, you know, I'm honest um, to, you know, a, a fault. Uh, so thanks so much for noticing that, you know, I was definitely the last person to get a job in my college class and everybody was <laughs> making fun of me finally get way graduated. Um, so I have to say that, you know, like I got this question a lot, right, you know, uh, about why you want to uh, study law, why you wanted to be a lawyer. I have to say, like, I just have to be honest with you. Like the reason why I got into law is because when I applied for college, 
Um, I grew up in a small town, uh, well, small city in China, and there's limited space for us to apply to these prestigious colleges. So the only two majors that was available to me at that moment, at that point, uh, uh, for this particular college I wanted to go to, one is Chinese literature, the other is law. And that makes the choice very easy for me. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I grew up in China. This was before internet, before like, you know, people in my circle actually got the opportunity to see around the world. So, you know, I had this dream of becoming an office girl with like a white shirt and a pencil skirt. And that was pretty much it, right? I, I The rest of it is really just about following the herd you know, going to the best schools, where, where is everybody else going, you know, like uh, getting the, the highest paying job, you know, everybody is uh, going to the US, and maybe that's something that I should do, I should do too. So that that pretty much led um, to all these collection of degrees, because I just felt like, hey, everybody is going to the US, maybe I should go there too. And then once I get to the US, I get one degree, and then you know, I couldn't find a job. I have to get another degree. And that's why I started collecting all these degrees. And I mean, you you are an immigrant. Uh, there were no lawyers in your family. And you ended up graduating and starting out at Skadden. So how did how did that end up? Um, how did you end up at Skadden? And then, of course, you had really solid law firm training early in your career. So tell us about your practice. Yeah, so um, it, it it was because I test well, you know, <laughs> like I always score really high on my tests. So um, that's how I got into Skadden, and um, you know, because I have really high GPAs in law school. And um, my first couple of years uh, being a corporate attorney at Skadden, it's your bread and butter being a corporate attorney, doing public securities work, corporate governance work, and M and A. Um, um, so that's that's just um, how I get started. And I know then, all of the sound all of this sounds like oh why is Wei here on this podcast right you know she is just like, <laughs> <laughs> but I promise you keep listening like things get better <laughs> from here. <laughs> well, you already have a really great story, especially given that English wasn't your first language and you were able to get into one of the top law firms. Uh, in in the country or in the world. So at at what point did you know that you wanted to go in-house? The first 40 years of my life is pretty much like falling in the herd, right? You know, go to the best schools, go to the best college and go to the the best jobs and uh, go to the best country. Um, uh, You know, not much thought has been given um, to exactly what I want to do and why I want to do it. So the reason why I went in-house is because during my maternity leave for my second daughter, a recruiter called and my mom was here and my mom basically said, hey, you know, you know, maybe now is a good time for you to spend more time with my family because uh, my first daughter, you know, Lena, I know you are a, a, a young mother as well. It's very tough to be a attorney working in the big law firm and be a good mother, right? You know, so I had my firstborn essentially crying uh, if she saw me being the first one who got home because she wasn't used to it. So you know, that was that was a pretty disheartening experience, right? You know, for me. Um, so at that point, um, you know, the recruiter called 
And I was like, okay, maybe now it's a good time to um, have a, a more work-life balance. Yeah, there's so many, there are so many thoughts on that. I mean, it, it's it's really hard to stay in the game, uh, as you mentioned, as a big law associate and with a young child. Uh, and I and I've seen so many people make that transition in house, um, especially especially during during the time that you did when I, I think practicing in house was a little there was a bit more of a work life balance than there is now, um, and so you ended up at Sun Microsystems. That was your first in house position, right? Yep. And yeah. I have to say, and, like you know, for those people who have illusion of being, being a in-house counsel has like more work-life balance, I agree with that. But I think you know, like now nowadays, nowadays I actually work longer hours <laughs> than what I, than how much I work, you know, when when in the law firm. But it didn't feel a chore at all. You know, I come in to work every day filled with joy and filled with purpose and filled with mission. It's just a completely different game now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and was that also part of the was, was that why you made the transition to to Salesforce too? That uh, just kind of the the excitement and being part of a company that was just um, kind of on the up and up. Um, uh, again, no. The reason why I started looking was because uh, some microsystems at that point was being acquired, right? You know, and being the uh, in-house M&A legal counsel, you know, the message was pretty, the message on the wall was pretty clear that you probably won't get a job, you know, after the deal closes. And that's why I started looking. And then there's this little company, you know, in uh, San Francisco, which I never heard of called Salesforce. And I was like, okay, you know, I probably would just go there for like two years and then I'll come back to the South Bay because everything, you know, uh, everything uh, in technology is happening in Palo Alto all the way through San Jose. <laughs> of course. And before you knew it, you were there for 12 years. Can yeah. you talk about what you were doing when you first got there and what your role looked like towards the end of your tenure there? Yeah, absolutely. So I was the first m and console. Um, uh, back then, they were not very acquisitive. And um, I spent 12 years there. Um, so uh, since I joined, uh, uh, Salesforce has become one of the most acquisitive companies on earth, right? You know, um, I worked on over 80 acquisitions and over like, you know, uh, 200 investments uh, and other strategic transactions during my time there. Um, and, uh, you know, when I first joined as part of the small team, you know, we, we had less than 30 attorneys back then at Salesforce. I was able to get hands-on experience on a variety of issues beyond just M&A. Right, you know, I have a particular, you know, um, fondness for uh, people who do M&A because M&A attorneys um, typically are these um, jack of all trades. Um, so you can be two kinds of M&A attorneys. You can be the M&A attorney who is essentially a project manager who pass things around uh, without looking into them yourself. Uh, I, I uh, fortunately have the experience of, well, I actually was in the position that I have to look at all these things myself, like including IP issues, privacy issues, employment issues, and um, commercial contract issues, uh, just because of the, the you know, the, the small team. So I was very fortunate uh, that I was able to do that. And then uh, by the end of my tenure there, uh, I had a, um, a almost a 20-person team. That who is in charge of uh, um, our entire uh, strategic transaction portfolios that ranges from 
acquisitions, investments, real estate, uh, M&A integration, which is a jackpot, a hodgepodge uh, of everything, um, uh, you know, happening in the acquired company. Um, and then at the latter stage of my career there, I started switching my focus from learning, you know, picking up these legal skills, right, you know, privacy, IP, uh, to more um, uh, learning about leadership, right, you know, how do you motivate the team, how do you set a vision, how do you innovate, how do you scale, um, and all of those things, and that was the first time I have to say, like, you know, I started thinking um, about uh, beyond, like, being a lawyer could be something that goes beyond uh, just legal issues. Great. And so it sounded like you had to build your 20 person team from scratch over the over the years that you were at Salesforce. Yes. Correct? Yes. And what did you look for uh, as you were as, as you were hiring attorneys for your team? Uh, and, Lena, this is the million dollar question, right? <laughs> how do you attract the best talent and how do you retain and train the best talent that, you know, start from hiring the right people? Um you know, hiring the right people who has the right men, uh, mentality is first and foremost. We were looking for someone, someone that who is eager and who is um, eager to learn, um, who who has the learning mentality that that I think is like super important. And then the other thing that you know, I was just talking with one of my prior uh, you know managers that who uh, is also my mentor, that he um, you know had this. Like when I when I first apply for a job, he I had to go through this technical interview where you do a test of like different um, uh, questions, and then they meet with you to talk through those questions. He swear that you know that was the secret of like finding the right talent. And I have to say, like you know, I have been um, having having a lot of uh, great success uh, with that myself as well. It's great to hear that uh, that your experience from from Salesforce uh, when hiring is still applicable today. And you also mentioned that towards the end of your time there, you started to learn more about leadership. Were those how did those opportunities come about? Was that just over time as as you became more senior and you had more exposure to the board and the executive team? Or did you really have to speak up and and fight for those opportunities to learn more about the business and to um, and to get more leadership opportunities? That's such a good question, Lena. Um, uh, first of all, you know, like when I first um, had those opportunities presented to me, I, um, I, I, those opportunities are every day around us. They're everywhere, right? You know, it's just, um, for, for the longest time, I didn't think that I needed it. Um, I thought that being a lawyer is all about like, you know, um, driving legal and business decisions. Uh, I didn't realize actually you know, leadership skills and, you know, communication skills were so important to us. This also attributes back to my Chinese roots where, you know, like my, both of my parents were engineers and they, they just, you know, do not have a lot of respect for those cadres that, you know, who are not technical and yet wants to manage them because they were just part of the Communist Party. Um, so, you know, like I have to say, like just me trying to, understand that you know what our leadership is something that i need to learn itself to go a long time uh but the first um 
you know, leadership opportunity where I actually actively sought, right? I, I went to, um, on my own, was the leadership in law from Berkeley. Um, and the, this great, you know, lecturer who uh, talked about, you know, these theories behind um, complex organizations, you know, what what's get inputted is actually not what gets outputted because of the human interaction and the factor, different complex factors. There's all sorts of biases in, in human perception, just putting it at a very academic level. And then that just speaks to me, right? You know, I'm a very intellectually curious person and I love to read a lot of things. Um, and so, you know, and I also went in uh, to that to that seminar, to, to that training uh, with a problem, with a burning problem I wanted to solve uh, in the first first place. And I can talk a little bit about this uh, on the Atticus project. And that just sparks, um, you know, all of the learning uh, from their, uh, from that point on. And was that also, was that around the time you knew that you wanted to become a GC or how, how when did you know that you wanted to become a general counsel? Yeah, I have to say, like, Lena, I, um, I, I guess I don't know if I wanted to be a general counsel even today. Um, I, you know, like what drives me on a day to day basis is I wanted to learn and I wanted to have impact on, um, on you know, have positive impact and contribution to the society around us. I, I know that sounds like really hollow and sounds like something that goes beyond me, but that's a genuine desire that I have uh, currently. It could be a GC job, it could be a business job, it could be an entrepreneur job, it could be like anything, right? You know, like so. So I'm not particularly uh, tied to uh, the GC role, um, and that's also something that you know, like I know, you know, if I say, hey, I wanted to be a GC, it's probably part of following the herd, hey, because every lawyer wants to be a GC. But then once you get here, you continue to ask the question of like, why am I here? What am I doing? What inspires me every single day? And that question will linger, um, will continue to linger after you become a GC. I don't think I've ever heard someone respond with, I, with respond with, I don't know if I want to be a GC even now, but it, I have heard of many GCs um, have share similar sentiments and that they weren't necessarily looking to be one. They were just very service oriented or client oriented or mission driven. And it, that, that goal just happens to align very well with becoming a general counsel. So what led you to Infoblox? Yeah, I have to say, like, you know, I, I have also heard of a lot of people saying that, oh, I, I didn't want to be a GC and somehow the GC title just fall on my head. Uh, and I'm right. always very jealous of those people because <laughs> I wanted to be, you know, I have to say I wanted to be a GC, right? You know, like because the pinnacle of uh, being an attorney is um, is to be a GC, but I just didn't know why. So when you ask me the question of like, when do you know that you wanted to be a GC? Like, you know, I just didn't know I wanted to be a DC to, because that's what everybody else else wanted, and I just don't know, right? You know why? But now I I know it's not like I wanted to be a DC. It's just I wanted to. I have that burning passion of solving problems uh, that can make a positive contribution to the world, um, and that's one of the things um, that you know 
I have to say, like that prevent me from uh, getting a GC job for the longest period of time. And then as soon as that my mindset gets switched into that, hey, it's not about me. It's not about getting a GC position. It's about um, having the passion, having the energy of trying to solve a problem and having the experience of tackling all sorts of different obstacles in order to get to that problem that I have to say, like, it's that mentality that ended up getting me the GC job. That that makes sense on a lot of levels. And when you were when you were looking for GC roles, what were some of the obstacles that you had faced while you were interviewing? Yeah, it's a, a lot, right? You know, I, I can tell you um, all of these obstacles that everyone probably recited back to uh, all the people that, you know, who haven't got a GC job yet. It's like, oh, you have never been a GC um, or you don't have the the relevant, relevant experience, you know, because we were looking for someone who, who has done IPO and yet you haven't done IPO. Um, you know, we were looking for someone who has a litigation experience. You have never done litigation. You know, it's like, uh, oh, we're looking for someone who has management experience and you don't have management experience. So it's 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 a lot of those. And I just couldn't overcome that. Right. You know, um, for the longest period of time. Um, but then, you know, after I got this GC job, so, so after I had that mindset switch of like, hey, um, Atticus Project is, is trying to solve a problem that is facing the entire legal department. And I have spent, you know, probably like two years trying to solve that problem, overcome a lot of obstacles, trying to be a business partner to, um, to you know, my Salesforce business clients. Um, as soon as I made that business change, all of those obstacles fell away. Like people don't, you know, not, now I kind of almost felt like that, those were just excuses excuses mm -hmm. of turning away candidates that they don't believe have the, the have the passion have the energy have the learning curiosity of uh, um uh, or or the grit of like trying to get uh, a gc job and i have to tell you like you know when my old colleagues now um reach out to me the, the first question is like hey how, how does it feel to be a gc and I have to say, like, you know, my first response is, um, you, you don't pay me enough to do this. <laughs> right? It's so hard. It's so hard. And the, 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 the responsibilities is huge. Um, and yet I don't regret any second of making this job. What are some aspects about being a GC that surprised you? Yeah. Um, when I was not a GC, I was jumping um, at the bed for like, let me make that decision. You know, let me uh, let me advise you. You know, on the risk of uh, uh, of this. I think this things should be done this way. And you know, why didn't you like let me? You know, like make that decision. Uh, you know, what surprised me is actually, you know, not now I feel the tremendous amount of responsibility and the burden on my shoulder. Uh, in making a decision that impacts the business and people's lives, right? You know, because I have a different perspective than some of the GCs, um, you know, in terms of a, a, a GC role. So one of my philosophy is when it comes to risk management or mitigation, the buck stops with me. What does that mean? You know, 
it's not just my role to tell the CEO that here are the risks I see, you know, in terms of that uh, legal issue or a business issue. I need to balance both the risks, um, you know, of a business decision and the benefit. And then I need to make a risk assessment of saying that, you know, hey, this is okay or not okay. And if it's not okay, what is the mitigation, you know, uh, um, that I can I can put in place in order to manage the risk. So, you know, in the old days, I always felt like, okay, yeah, like, you know, I can advise the risk on the risk and I explain it in a very plain English way. The business people understand. And now I can just sit back and not be responsible. But now, like, you know, the burden of making that decision and then if that decision goes wrong, I'm accountable and then I have to come up with ways to fix it. That burden is pretty heavy. Exactly. And that's why the GC role isn't for everyone. And I'm sure many people think that they can do it. But as you said, that responsibility is extremely heavy. How, how has it been like to work for a PE backed company as vis a vis a public company like Salesforce? Um, I have to say, like, you know, um, I don't know, is it because Infoblox is the exception because Infoblox was a public company? Um, you know, eight years ago. Um, but um, I don't see that much of a difference, you know, in terms of rigor, in terms of the desire for process procedures, in terms of the ability to, you know, to balance uh, the need for speed and agility in uh, innovation and the need for risk management, because we deal with, um, you know, the largest of the, uh, the customers, um, enterprise customers ranging from governments to banks to, you know, financial institutions, so healthcare. Um, so I don't see uh, that much of a difference. So of course, like, you know, there's no, um, there, there's less scrutiny in terms of the financial reporting side of the house. Um, but, you know, the, the, the need for pro pro profitability, the need for Efficiency, the need for margins is not that different, uh, especially in this new uh, economy. Yeah, that's interesting to hear. Uh, and it, it does seem like nowadays with the economy being where it is, uh, what it is, both public and private companies uh, are kind of rowing in the same direction in the sense that everybody's facing very, very similar headwinds. You mentioned the Atticus project a couple of times. I know it is a labor of love. So can you tell listeners what that organization is and how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. So the Atticus project is a nonprofit organization I founded three years ago just to, to try to solve my own problem. Right. You know, so I was an M&A attorney by training. Uh, I spend countless hours um, doing due diligence uh, where you review uh, thousands of contracts just to find the needle in a haystack, you know, a couple of problematic uh, provisions. Um, and then, you know, I haven't had to do that for a long time. Now I become a senior, um, uh, you know, attorney, but there's still a lot of people who are doing that. And then as a client, uh, you know, that's kind of, you know, the expensive part of doing a deal where you kind of you know, balance the pros and cons of like whether it's worth the money. So 
one of the ways that I was thinking about making that process more accessible uh, to, you know, big companies or small companies alike is to leverage AI, right? Leverage AI to be able to understand these contracts and, you know, with a click of a button, maybe like you can have some of these problematic uh, clauses presented to you and then, you know, you can have the human coming in and then do the analysis and do the strategic advising. Um, so with the AI technology um, becoming a little bit more mature, this was like three years ago. I had the illusion that there are AI legal companies who can help me with that problem, but it turned out that they couldn't. And the reason why they couldn't is because of the lack of training data set. Um, so now that's a very well-known uh, issue. You know, data is the new air or the new oil, or you know, everybody knows the the, the importance of data. And so that's when I started, um, you know, coming up with this uh, solution of, hey, if we uh, gather, um, you know, the legal uh, professionals try to label these training, uh, these contracts and essentially tell the AI that, you know, what part of this contract actually is important, is problematic, then the AI would know and then the AI would be able to, um, you know, like a, a understand legal text. All of that has been fundamentally um, challenged and I have to say like in the past three months since I got my hands on chat GPT um, and I have to say like you know from a uh, my you know from from the Atlas project perspective we're having an existential crisis right you know like before our goal was to create these training data set to increase the AI's ability to understand legal text but it turned out that you know GPT-4 is so good it doesn't. It may or may not even need uh, these training data sets anymore. So we're uh, we're uh, doing a complete pivoting. We're having uh, our volunteers stop labeling all of these contracts. Instead, they're doing prompt engineering. Uh, we're still trying to figure it out. You know that this this whole generative AI development uh, put everybody. Um, you know, uh, in the stage where you just don't know what to do. You know, from this point on. That's wild. And I have heard that for some experts have made the analogy that AGI is almost the equivalent of when a man, disco man discover fire. Um, and so how how are you utilizing AI, if at all, in your legal department? I know that a lot of GCs are um, kind of trying to wrap their heads around corporate policy on AI use, whether or not they should uh, allow um, employees or attorneys to, to use it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I use ChatGPT every single day. Um, I use it for a variety of different purposes and um, I use it uh, to do research. You know, for example, you know, uh, today there was a question about patent continuation. I wasn't a patent. I, I'm not a patent attorney. I have no idea. Right. You know, so I use ChatGPT to do some of the, the questioning and then I got the, the keywords from these answers and I do an online search to find a more reputable uh, source. For that, I find that to be very helpful. I asked uh, ChatGPT to draft me a patent continuation FAQ so I can educate my engineering team, and then I, you know, cross-check that with the, uh, you know, law firm uh, publications. I find that to be very helpful as well. Um, I'm also experimenting with like using um, uh, 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 GPT-4 API to uh, summarize issues in the red line. 
and also creating a chatbot, you know, like answering some routine legal questions. So all of this is still in the lab stage, but I'm super excited, you know, about what's coming uh, down the pipe in the next like six months to 12 months. That being said, you know, like only if you started using this, you'll understand that, you know, um, what are the potential risks and how do you um, put put together a best practice to mitigate mm-hmm. those risks? Um, for example, you know, I just um, conclude. I just had a call right before this um, podcast to um, to discuss, um, you know, hey, what are the guardrails that we can put in place in order to prevent the developers from potentially running into IP issues by using ChatGPT to code. Right. Um, we all know that, you know, if we prevent that, if we just say you are prohibited from doing that, uh, people will do it. They will do it. They will do it, you know, uh, undercover and it's going to be worse. Right. Um, so having a clear uh, path to figure out a way based on your company's risk profile is very important. You just can't turn a blind eye thinking that, you know, like if you prohibit it, if you have a policy, your job is done. That's great advice because uh, AGI is here to stay and we all have to learn how to use it and utilize it and and run towards it as, as opposed to away from it. And given all the obstacles that you have faced in becoming a general counsel, what advice do you have for aspiring GCs? Yeah, um, I actually, I, I'm going to steal this advice from, you know, um, you know, one of the uh, CEOs of a, a startup. And uh, he said, you know, hey, um, in terms of like, uh, uh, there is what, what you value and then how you show up, right? You know, if you can bridge the gap between what you value versus how you show up uh, on a day-to-day basis, your life will feel, uh, it will be filled with purpose and mission and joy and, you know, satisfaction. Uh, it doesn't matter how many hours that you work on a daily basis and whatnot, like, you know, so so I would say, yes, like, um, you know, aspiring GCs, um, you know, yes, like being a GC is a, is a admirable goal, but that can't be the goal. Nobody is born to say, Hey, I value for being a GC because GCs and GCs, they're very different. So you need to really think about what you value. For me, what I value is making, um, is, um, uh, making like, uh, coming up with a solution to solve a problem that is going to have an impact on the legal society. At one point, I even had this illusion of like, hey, you know, the legal services is so inefficient. And, you know, like it's my uh, it's my job, you know, to help, um, you know, improve that. And then how you show up every day. Right. You know, like if I um, have to be a GC where I can't do anything, you know, all I do is to uh, to operate around a consent decree, you know, from the FTC, like, you know, trying to maneuver all these like very complicated risk management issues, or are you trying to like do a litigation that is not gonna, you know, uh, result in the company, uh, you know, a large amount of uh, damages. That, that would not be, that would not be the kind of activity that would give me joy. Right. You know, so the kind of activity that will give me joy is 
being able to sit at the executive table, understand marketing issues, marketing challenges, sales challenges, you know, finance challenges, and being able to think creatively of coming up with, with a way to move the business forward, not only from a legal perspective, but also from a business perspective. That's what I enjoy. And so I was able to bridge that gap, you know, in my current job by just constantly thinking about, oh, you know, like, uh, I'm learning today on these things that I didn't know. And I challenge myself to come up with a solution that is going to, uh, that is going to solve that. It sounds like your advice really kind of ties back to what you were saying earlier about just having a passion or, or being very mission driven in whatever you do. And perhaps that will kind of, that will lead you, uh, that will lead people ultimately to the GC, GC role. And for women and women of color who want to be a, uh, a leader in house, um, I, I think, I think we run up against that likability factor, which is also a double-edged sword. Have you had experience with being viewed as likable, but just another worker bee? Or on the flip side, which is you have opinions and ideas, but you're considered too aggressive? Yeah, Lena, this is this is where I'm I'm smiling when I hear this question because I, I had encountered both. You know, at my uh, some some of my earlier career, there's this you know impression that you know, hey, you're not being aggressive, you're not like you know advocating and you know uh, all of that. And then, uh, but then at you know when I went in house, it's almost like you're being too aggressive and you're not you know like you you you're perceived as not collegial. Um, I, I I have to say like you know you just can't you you can't let any of those tie you down to become someone that who you're not. Uh, this is authenticity is really important to you because I think most people decided to leave uh, their career because they couldn't be authentic. Um, and then they just had to show up differently from how they value from how they value themselves and what they value. And over time that, you know, being not being able to be your authentic self is very tiring. And you just felt like, you you know, you miss you you misconstrue that as you not liking the job. Um, so I would say that, you know, one enlightening moment for me was during one of the seminars for negotiation, um, you know, someone basically told, told us that, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. Uh, you could be a very effective negotiator if you're aggressive, or if uh, you can be a very good negotiator if you're collaborative. You just to be mind, need to be mindful of like uh, who you are, what's your strength, and then you have other toolkits tool ki- uh, tool in your, you have other tools in your toolkit that you, know, you can leverage either from yourself or from somebody else that you'll hire, right? You know, so that, that advice um, was very enlightening to me because it's based on this assumption that you are enough, right? You know, I think people always have this uh, misconception that they need to change. They need to change because they were either too aggressive or too nice or too, you know, something. Um, And I think that we just need to eliminate that. 
um, if you genuinely care about uh, the people around you, and if you genuinely are passionate about pursuing uh, you know, your end goal, eventually you'll be accepted. Um, by you know, not by everyone. The goal is never to be accepted or liked by everyone, but it's just you know accepted by those people that who truly see who you are and then are able to accept you. What a liberating attitude that is, and it's great that you, as a leader, embody that mentality so that members of your team can feel empowered. There have been so many ups and downs this past year. Have the changes in the market shifted your priorities and focus at all as a GC? I mean, the year of 2023 is going to be the year of AI as we all know it, right? And AI is going to challenge our ability to um, be more effective, be more efficient, scale, do more with less. And this has been the top priority for almost all GCs across the board. And now, you know, generative AI is just brings this to uh, the forefront uh, of everything that we do. Um, so you will see a lot of changes um, in the in the coming days about how uh, the legal industry needs to evolve itself and um, how we need to shape um, uh, the perception that legal is just a uh, is a box. Um, you have this uh, prejudice against lawyers for being a, um, you know, risk adverse. You know, as soon as you started talking with a lawyer, things slow down, and then you just, you know, uh, nothing gets done. You know, I think there is a general misconception, general prejudice against lawyers in the industry, and I hope that you know I can do something to change that. Um, every lawyer needs to be a business. Um, a business person as well, right? You know, like helping your company to succeed from a business perspective is everybody's job and it's the GC's job as well. Um, and it requires you to identify not only like, you know, do the risk management, but also identify ways that you can increase productivity, you can effectively manage risk, and then you can effectively like move the business forward. Sounds like a lot going on on your plate between your day job and the Atticus project and everything that's going on in the AI world. There must be a lot on your mind. So what do you do to decompress at the end of the day? Yeah, uh, long distance running and hiking with my family. I prioritize um, running over everything else. Right. You know, like if I don't do that, like uh, I, I, I can't you know, keep my sanity and also um, when I run, I listen to these entrepreneurial stories about, uh, you know, how other people try to solve their difficult problems. And I have to tell you, like so many things, so many good ideas that came about, you know, during those long runs. So, you know, it doesn't need to be a long, uh, run. It just set aside that half an hour or like even 15 minutes every single day to do things that you really enjoy uh, is definitely worthwhile. Sounds like it's a great way for your brain to just disconnect from everything so that you have space to to think these big thoughts and to and to be able to really think clearly about some of the challenges. And so you're able to problem solve. 
Well, Wei, I thank you so much for your time. It's been really great chatting with you and getting to getting the opportunity to ask you um, all of these questions and hear about your your journey. I know that becoming general counsel is just the beginning, and you still have such a long runway ahead of you. And I look forward to supporting you in your journey. Thanks so much for listening to GCs in the House. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me next time for an in-depth discussion with another general counsel. I welcome your feedback and recommendations for guests. You can reach me at lguo at mlaglobal.com. Please also reach out if you have any questions or comments about today's episode. Until next time.